This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, among the COVID stories that are catching our attention, we've got one about how pharmaceutical execs are mixing up their own vaccines to get at a higher immunity. So maybe think about a drug cocktail. And then, Tim, of course, those Moderna headlines. Yeah, the Moderna, the company saying that it doesn't see signs that its shot causes heart issue, the issue myocarditis, uh, as well as a condition called pericarditis. The company saying it has not established a causal association with its vaccine. Well, let's get right into it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us this afternoon on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, how are you on this Friday afternoon? Doing very well, guys. Hope all is well with you. Definitely some interesting uh, stories that doesn't seem to end when it comes to COVID and the vaccines. Yeah, it does. And well, let's get right into it and, and, and talk about the, the mRNA vaccines, because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it's identified a total of 216 cases of heart inflammation after the first dose of an mRNA shot and another 573 cases after the second dose. At the same time, Moderna coming out and saying that it sees no sign that the shot causes heart issues. How are you reading into this? Well, there's definitely an increased incidence, right? We certainly know that myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis, which is the sac that the heart sits in, can occur. It can occur at any age. We see viral inflammation of the heart. We see uh, usually viral or other infections that cause pericarditis. But the number of cases, especially in young men, uh, those under 30, is definitely higher than one would statistically think of uh, in that population. So there's definitely an increased incidence, um, and it seems to be associated with the mRNA vaccines. What we don't know is are they causing it or how they're causing it. Uh, the CDC, I think, is definitely looking into that. And this raises the question of, as we're getting more data, should we be kind of targeting vaccines for certain age groups? Maybe young men should be thinking more about the J&J vaccine, the single dose, as opposed to young women, where we were seeing some perhaps increased clots with AstraZeneca or this TTS syndrome with J&J. You know, perhaps young women should be thinking more of the mRNA. We're really just sort of getting that data. And at some point down the line, uh, hopefully soon, we may be able to say if you're in this group, this would give you the most benefit with the least risk. Uh, clearly, these are not a huge number of cases, but obviously higher than we would expect. And you always try and reduce risk whenever you're giving any sort of treatment or prevention. So, Dr. Lusbader, are we getting to the point... It was funny, I was having a conversation, a little parenthetical here, uh, earlier, and someone w went to get the vaccine. They're like, well, wait a minute, because they were going to be given the Pfizer. They're like, can I actually have the J&J? &J? And they were able to kind of mm. pick the vaccine they wanted. On the flip side, are doctors getting to a point, the medical community saying, you know what? I've looked at your medical history. I've looked at your age. I've looked at some other factors. I think you should get this vaccine. There are some patients who say, what should I get? And okay. uh, most don't really check in before they get it. And 
many centers don't have every, it's not like a restaurant where you can say, it's I not a buffet. this one or that <laughs> one. I mean, at some point we may get to that, but usually if you go to a particular center, whether it's uh, even a local pharmacy, they will have a limited number of vaccines, you know, due to storage and other, uh, and other issues. And really for the majority of people, they're all very effective. Uh, very, very few people actually get COVID. A Cleveland Clinic study just showed that. They looked at 52,000, you know, patients, not only uh, who've had COVID previously, but those with vaccines. So um, for most people, it doesn't matter. But if you are in one of those groups, uh, a young woman or a young man, now that this data is coming through, it may be worth talking with your doctor and saying, hey, based on the data, is there one that may be better for me? Well, let's talk a little bit more about that Cleveland Clinic study finding. Um, the idea is that there's not necessarily proof that we should be vaccinating those who have had COVID-19. Take us into it. Exactly right. So that study, and it's from a very reputable uh, institution, the Cleveland Clinics, looked at about 52,000 employees and uh, a certain percent had had COVID previously. And, and they looked at those who were vaccinated and those who were not vaccinated. And it turned out that really zero um, people who had had the uh, COVID, uh, COVID infection, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, and had um, uh, proof of having that, they did not get a second infection. So you can't get better than zero, you know, out of 52,000. So that's very reassuring. We have been pushing even people who've had um, uh, the COVID infection to say, hey, you take this. That, uh, that's exactly why I was so skeptical when I saw this and then so surprised when I saw this because it flies in the face of what we've heard from the CDC. Well, it's an evolving picture. Let's put it that way. I think for people who've had it, it they should be very reassured. There's some, you know, debate, uh, you know, in terms of vaccine availability. Should we be using all these vaccines when other countries may need them? Mm. But I think if you've had COVID, your risk of getting it again is very low. We certainly know the vaccines really boost your antibody response. And for new variants like Delta, that's, uh, you know, from India, that could be a problem. It may be that a vaccine would be very helpful for that. I would say, you know, right now, if you've had COVID, um, there's no panic to get a, a booster shot, although it probably will provide some benefit. All right, good stuff. Hey, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, with us on the phone in Long Island. Tim, listen, it's, as he said, you know, this is evolving. We're finding our way through this. Yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's, it's like a science experiment, a study playing out in real time. And in a sense, all medicine is like that, I've learned, right? Right. Look at what happened with Alzheimer's and Biogen this week. Right, exactly. Let's get back right to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, a story by our own Todd Gillespie uh, that came out earlier today, all about how pharmaceutical executives are kind of, <laughs> the way I thought of it was doing experiments on themselves in, in trying to determine whether or not they can get a higher immunity from a mix of their own COVID shots, different vaccines. And it's it's actually something that, it's new to me, but it's not new to doctors and people who study this stuff. It's called heterologous prime boosting. What exactly is it and, and what are these executives doing and how could it affect the way that we receive vaccines in the future? So we've known for a long time that the heterologous prime boosting, basically giving one vaccine 
then followed by a different vaccine really gives you a more robust response. All of the original studies just looked at individual companies doing their own uh, testing. So obviously, you know, uh, Pfizer was uh, three weeks apart, Moderna four weeks apart, uh, J&J just the single vaccine, uh, although there were some studies that showed a follow-up. But it turns out if you combine these, for example, there are a number of studies that show uh, not in, uh, in a limited number of patients, hundreds of patients, the studies have been done, but they show, for example, like the AstraZeneca, which is an adenovirus vector, similar to J&J. If you give that followed by either the Moderna mRNA or the Pfizer uh, mRNA vaccine, they had up to seven times higher antibodies and longer lasting. Wow. And the hope, yeah, yeah it's, it's quite significant. And that, that may be the wave of the future. That may be... Um, the standard approach. And certainly patients who say, gosh, I missed my follow-up dose. I was away. I couldn't get it. Can I get a different vaccine? I think the answer is yes, you can. And that may be a good idea, actually. But um, the concern or the reason you may want these higher antibody levels is exactly for the Delta, you know, Indian uh, variant, which is more infectious, more deadly. Um, it continues to uh, multiply and mutate. Obviously, you've got a billion people as your substrate of viral replication. So the thinking is that if we combine these, we'll get a more a robust response that hopefully would defend uh, the body better against any variants that come along. That's not proven, but that's the thinking. Yeah. And it, it, we continue to find out more and more. Hey, listen, before we go, we have a couple of minutes left and we've got to ask you about Biogen uh, and it's Alzheimer's drug. Uh, the story, one of the stories today, uh, a prominent Harvard Medical uh, School professor has resigned from an FDA advisory panel in protest test over the agency's decision to improve to approve Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. And so he announced his departure. He put out a letter. He's the third committee member to quit in the wake of this highly controversial approval. And forgive me, this happened yesterday. Uh, how do you feel about this? Or what are you hearing? Well, I think um, uh, they're trying to be uh, ethical about this. Mm -hmm. And Alzheimer's is a very tough disease. It's very tough to really prove benefit from these drugs. That this particular drug was approved by the FDA because it lowered the levels of amyloid, which is a protein in the brain. Alzheimer's is complicated. There are many biochemical and physical changes in the brain, uh, amyloid deposits, neurofibrillary tangles. And so the drug did reduce amyloid, but it's very hard to really prove benefit because uh, Alzheimer's is a progressive disease typically. So does it slow the progression? Does it stop the progression? Does it reverse the dementia? You know, it's how do you measure it? And more importantly, so what if you lower amyloid? Are you really clinically affecting the outcome of the patient? You know, you may be lowering this protein, which is associated. And I think these three professors resigned because I think they felt unconvinced that we're raising hopes of patients that this drug, very expensive drug, is going to help them when the actual clinical outcome is not well proven. I think that was their key complaint. Hence the ethical dilemma. Yeah, 30 seconds, Dr. Lesbader. Does it set a dangerous precedent for the FDA in future approvals? I think you have to listen to your advisory committees and, and see if you, their points are valid. And I think in this case, it probably was valid. Um, and they were going on kind of a different metric. Maybe a useful metric, but I think that committee wanted more data. And anybody who's had uh, a family member yeah. who's had Alzheimer's or even some other illness, um, if you can get a couple months, a couple weeks, 
a couple years out of um, a, a treatment, it means an awful lot. And that's where it's really gray and fuzzy, Tim. I think that's perhaps why, despite the fact that it's $56,000 for a treatment plus, mm-hmm. plus more, um, investors saw it as, as something that is tenable. Right, exactly. And there's a lot of folks out there with Alzheimer's as well, of course. Dr. Ian Lusbader, the best, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, joining us on the phone from Long Island. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week, it's in my hands. It's now on newsstands. It's in Tim's hands. It's online and on the Bloomberg. The domestic cover asks, who needs a margarita? A margarita? I and do. After this week. <laughs> I think we all do. That story and a bunch more, including the international cover, China Wolves and the New Age of ESG. Let's open up the issue with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn. But before we do that, Joel, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, you're referencing a National Magazine Award yes. that uh, Bloomberg Business Week won last night for... A uh, single topic issue that we did last spring called The Lost Year, um, which if you look at the cover of it, we, we use that cover line on, on the issue that shipped March 11th, um, which was as uh, the world was felt, sort of felt like it was falling apart, or at least here in New York, it did. Um, so it was a huge honor. Uh, to accept that and on behalf of the staff and, and Bloomberg. Um, and it was yeah, prescient. Hope, I'm just going to say it was prescient. Hope, yeah, they, it definitely feels that way. It's, you know, I think I fretted for most of the year about, <laughs> was it going to be less than a year? Because that would look bad. Is it going to be more than a year? But it turns out um, it was a bold call and, and, and the right one. And, you know, I think the thing that these are kind of the Oscars of the magazine world and um, it means that, you know, our peers basically said um, this was you at your best, which we felt as well. So, again, quite an honor. Yeah. And Joel, one more question on that, because this is such a big deal. And, I, and as Carol mentioned, it was it was really prescient of you and your team. And I'm, I'm wondering what it was that, that made you realize, uh, look, 15 months ago at this point, that, that 2020 would indeed be a lost year. Well, I was in a meeting and it, it, being in that meeting and realizing how um, how so many people were confused and um, uh, made me realize that that same conversation was happening in boardrooms across the country and the world, frankly. Um, And as people were just doing complete write-offs for what their projections would look like, that would be a pretty devastating year for the economy. And so that's, that was the kernel of the idea. Mm. Um, And, and I remember walking out of that meeting and, not sure if I wanted to do a cover-to-cover issue, uh, and I walked out of that meeting thinking, not only are we doing a cover-to-cover issue, but we're calling it the lost year. Well, it's kind of a perfect segue into this week's edition, which I think in, in a lot of ways symbolizes the reopening of New York City, the cover here in the, in the it's, U.S. That's exactly right. So the, yeah. the, the cover story is about um, uh, Jimmy Buffett, who most of us know is a, a musician, and I'm quite fine, fond of that music for the record. Uh, and he, he actually turns out that he has a business empire uh, that basically has uh, uh, been the legacy of the song Margaritaville. And not only has it uh, uh, just boomed, it's um, expanding. And he's just opening a New York Times Square uh, extension, a Margaritaville Hotel with restaurants and bars and everything. Um, and it, it, the timing couldn't be better because just as New York's coming back to life, 
you've got a place to go have margarita margaritas and daiquiris in Times Square. We've been planning a road trip, okay, a class trip. What about just like an offsite <laughs> broadcasting from there? I mean, why not, right? Why not? Yeah, I, yeah, or just a meeting even. Like I'm done with the Zoom stuff. Let's just go see each other face to face. But it's so, but it's, it's crazy, it's right? A song he wrote. In, it's a, it's crazy because it's a song he wrote in what a few minutes. Yeah, and it it actually you know there's so much business wisdom in this story of like mm. he realized he had something but he couldn't do it on his own. Uh, found somebody who became a, a great partner and realized that they could put their brand on a lot of different things. And <laughs> I think they're still figuring out what they can put it on. And uh, you know, marijuana to daiquiri machines, they've they've really been able to do it all. All right. Go, go ahead, Carol. I was going to say, I don't have a great segue uh, to the next story, but we've <laughs> talked about this story. Just have on... another drink of your margarita and you'll figure <laughs> it out. That's it. That's it. Well, maybe the, the Chinese wolf warriors need to have a margarita. Okay, we can talk about that one. So, so uh, uh, Peter Martin wrote this story. Uh, he's uh, got a book coming out. So this mm-hmm. is technically an, an excerpt. Um, so, so congrats to Pete on, it, on this book. Uh, we uh, obviously know that the wolf warriors have become um, like a diplomatic strategy of China's and, and they're very aggressive and um, in, in expanding China's influence and, and uh, showing that there's a lot of bark at least um, with where China wants to go and, and perhaps some bite even. <laughs> and uh, as Pete writes, it's, it's, a, it's a bold strategy, but despite some rhetoric from um, the top in Beijing, like we, we shouldn't expect any of that to back down anytime soon. Joel, there's also a story in this week's edition of the magazine, a deep dive into the Exxon activist victory, marking a coming of age for ESG investing. Take us into it. Engine yeah. number one. This is a Sejal Kishan story. Uh, she worked with Joe Carroll on it about um, a, a thing that I don't feel very many people saw coming. I mean, I certainly didn't. When when the name Engine Number One was first uttered in, in the meetings that I was in, I, it was sort of like, who? Who the heck is that? And it turns out that not only were they activist investors, but it kind of shows the, a new age of activist investors that they're that they're willing not only to take on companies and you know, as we've written in cover stories in Business Week, Exxon ten years ago was on on top of the world you know there was no there was no more valuable company than exxon and how the mighty have fallen and and as they're falling we're seeing how activists can come in and and attempt to probably work for more change so it's it's one to watch um and and one that i think has taken a lot of investors and boards by surprise so i think definitely more to come um, in this in this vein going forward. Yeah, massive undertaking financially, certainly for engine number one to take on Exxon. Hey, uh, a story we've been also referencing, um, the FOMO economy. When Stanley <laughs> Druckenmiller <laughs> gets FOMO, you got to sit up and take notice. Yeah, so this was one that we ended up doing as the international cover story. I thought it was good enough to be global, but that I, I just had to, you know, give everybody a margarita. Um, <laughs> the the idea really came from me from just being on the playground and suddenly, you know, watching my my son and having all these people interact that I interact with telling me about how they've struck it rich. And I was like, Am I the only one who's not rich right now? Who's getting rich? Like, what am I doing wrong? And and Lionel uh, Laurent, who's a great uh, contributor in Bloomberg Opinion, wrote a story that basically helped sum all that up. Whether it's Dogecoin or housing or meme stocks, and you know, we could go right now. We were talking about AMC, which was on fire. 
you know, all of it just feels like, boy, I just feel like I've missed out on everything. And um, if, you're, if you've ever been taught, like, you know, sane approaches to investing or index funds, I think you probably feel the same way, which is just like, wow, <laughs> what's going on? Exactly. Yeah, you're not the exactly. only one, Joel. Hey, just in 15 seconds that we have, take us down to Florida's Trump coast uh, with uh, Josh uh, Green. The, yeah, the Josh Green story is an epic one. It was just like the moment that we knew Mar-a-Lago was a destination. We said, Josh, can you go down there and just like give us a cultural uh, uh, letter from from South Florida? And, and, he, and he did, and I think he found some really surprising stuff that was uh, shows how strong Trump's hold on the GOP is. All right, everybody, there's your weekend reading list. Check it out online, on newsstands, and on the Bloomberg. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Congratulations again. Uh, it's a great, that issue was incredible. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. What two weeks it has been this past week. <laughs> I don't even know what to compare it to. It's like every week feels like it's kind of wild. But hey, that's why we love what we do. And I had a day and a half off and it still feels like two <laughs> weeks. Let's get to it. Time for the drive to the close. And back with us is David Dietz. He's managing principal, senior portfolio strategist over at PPAC Private Wealth Management, $9.4 billion in assets under management. David with us once again on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, how do you make sense of a week like this past week? Well, I mean, the key metric this week has been this higher-than-expected inflation number, the highest in 13 years, yet you would think that we'd see a big bond tantrum, uh, yields racing north, but we're not seeing that at all. We're down by about 25, 30 basis points since March, and I think Wall Street is scratching their heads trying to make sense of this higher-than-expected inflation, yet no reaction to the bond market. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're all smart here, and we know we went through a pandemic, and we know that everything fell off a cliff, and we're still bouncing back. These are still post-pandemic coming back numbers. So we're not, like, we get it, don't we? Certainly, you know, that's one of the reasons that people are giving these high inflation numbers a pass. I mean, we saw 12%... Uh, markup in terms of used car prices, and people are saying, well, we're not going to see 12% each year. Uh, ditto when it comes to airfares are not going to be keep going up this rate and some other things. Having said that, even when you strip out the food and energy, you've got this core CPI is at the hottest since the 1990s. It, this is the central question, Carol. Is this transitory because this is a, just a bump up when you compare it versus very depressed conditions a year ago during the pandemic, or is this something a little bit more permanent that the bond market is going to factor in and ultimately the Fed's going to have to take action. Well, I think if, you know, we talked a little bit about this yesterday when we got these figures, the headline numbers were, were certainly hot. But if you took a, a peek under the hood and you saw actually, you know, what accounted for those significant changes, a lot of it had to do with things that were transitory, especially when you take into account the base effect of one year ago and what was happening one year ago. But even things that were month over month higher, like uh, car rental prices, for example, we know those are things that are going to come back down uh, as uh, this pent up demand kind of makes its way throughout the summer and the early fall, right? And isn't that what the bond market is telling us? 
Well, I think that's what it's telling us. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem is, of course, is that, um, you know, we haven't gotten out to back to full employment. We know we're making progress. We're seeing each week better or, or fewer uh, claims for unemployment uh, insurance. Um, we know we're going to get back there as the pandemic uh, wanes, more people have vaccines and so forth. So we think ultimately there's going to be some upward pressure on wages and so forth. And even some of the sticky items uh, in the inflation numbers uh, seem to be going up too. And, and we know that once wages and some of those sticky items go up, they're not going to come back down. So that's what we're bracing for. But you know, again, with wages, we're seeing a lot of those increases in hotel workers, the hospitality industry, restaurants. There are things that those kinds of companies and industries are doing to get workers back um, who may be a little bit nervous about doing so. I mean, to Tim's point, David, 52% of the month-over-month increases came from six components, used cars, rental cars, vehicle insurance, I see a trend, lodging, airfares, and food away from home. Yeah, a- absolutely. So, you know, every time there's an inflation cycle, people always point to a few outliers and say, well, that's the problem. But but here's what we're up against, uh, Carol, is that, um, you know, your 10-year Treasury now is at 1.45, yet the implied inflation on tips, Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, for the next 10 years is 2.5. So real yields are still negative. We know this economy is getting back on its feet. We've got more stimulus, perhaps on its way from an infrastructure bill. We've got the, the, the Federal Reserve uh, but, putting money into the system. And so eventually right. interest rates are going to have to go up. But isn't it like a pendulum, right? We, sw- we just swung so dramatically one way when everything fell off a cliff. Now we're swinging kind of dramatically the back, you know, back. It's going to settle at some point, but we really won't know, David, right? Until we are kind of out of this pandemic, what really the economic numbers really are and what the real inflation is. For every buyer, there's a seller. But, you know, one way I'm looking at it here is that, you know, we started the year, 10-year treasuries were under 1%. They got up to 175. Now they're 145. You can still make a case that we're trending up here. You know, in 2019, which will eventually we'll get back to conditions like that, I think 10-year treasuries as high as 2.9. So the question mm-hmm. is, what do you do now? Do you expect interest rates to stay low or do you brace for higher rates, higher economic growth going ahead? Okay, how do you brace for it? What do you pick? So we think economically sensitive stocks are the ones that you want to tilt your portfolio to. Uh, These would be financial services. They love higher interest rates. They can charge more for their mortgages, get more on their insurance portfolios. We think materials, energy, ultimately, for example, this upcoming Thanksgiving, people are going to be hitting the road. People are going to be flying. There's going to be tremendous demand. Uh, No one wants to drill anymore. So we think things like that will be going up, and that's where you should be tilting. While things like pizza delivery and so forth, we're not going to see that big increase in demand going forward. All right. So what we you be buying here? You know, we love Intel as a way to play both technology and a cyclical upturn. You know, we know there's a chip shortage. We know we have to you know, recreate manufacturing here uh, on our shores. Uh, Intel's got new management with uh, the engineer from Inge- uh, Intel returning. Um, they're st- trading at just 12 times earnings. They're still at a cheaper price than they were in 1999. But when you think of chips, uh, autonomous driving, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, you got to think of Intel. We think that's a great way to, you know, have a secular trend, but also take advantage of the cyclical upturn. Hey, what about AT&T? I know that's on your list of, of, of companies that you're interested in. Uh, why, especially as they go through this sort of um, 
recalibration back to a telecom company away from media company. Yeah, so they got the new man in there, John Stanky. I think he's doing the right thing. He is refocusing the company on telecommunications, getting outside of the content. I think that their announcement just recently to shed their entertainment Warner Media assets, put into a separate company, merge it with Discovery, will allow them to uh, better focus on the wireless, the, the 5G opportunity, let someone else deal with the entertainment assets. Of course, they still have 71% of that. But w- the opportunity here is they're paying a 7% dividend. They have to rationalize that. It's going to come back down to 4%. So you have the stampede of people out who want the big dividend, I think people are going to come in and say, hey, it makes more sense. What the company doesn't pay out to me as a dividend, they keep in the company, it benefits my shares, it allows them to deleverage. So the stock yeah. is down now, I see it drifting up. Hey, just got about 50 seconds left here. Exxon, I'm assuming dividend play is part of the reason you like Exxon, because it's also been on quite a run, up more than 50% this year. But the dynamics longer term, most investors would argue it's definitely changing. So I think the argument for like any energy company here is that the rush to get green is happening faster than consumers can actually wean themselves off from their automobiles, wean themselves off from gas to heat their homes and so forth. And I think ultimately that's going to push prices up dramatically. Exxon is the no-brainer. It's the largest publicly traded integrated energy company. I think people are also on pause here because they've looked at three board seats which have gone to so-called um, green directors, but guess what? Those green directors want to make money too. And yeah. of course, why you're waiting for things, you got that big 6% dividend, Carol. Story in the magazine about engine number one. Uh, they had to talk about could, right? <laughs> what? The little engine that could. The right? little engine that definitely did. David Dietz, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Managing principal, senior portfolio strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management, $9.4 billion in assets under management on the phone from Summit. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.